failed to introduce myself. I decided to avoid, but Sarah <laughs> called me out and said, need to say hello and why you're not Jack Cornfield. <laughs> um, anyway, so my name is uh, Matthew Brensilver and uh, am... Um, in the uh, in the Spirit Rock IMS teacher training program, and uh, teach uh, was trained by Noah Levine and the uh, Dharma Punks and Against the Stream. Uh, yeah, I know I don't I don't have the uh, appropriate number of tattoos. Uh, zero so far, actually. But anyway, that's that's where uh, that was the the sangha that I I just. Um, uh, was was very, you know, started sitting with them, and uh, was quite touched by that community. And so, uh, anyway, that's that's where I I teach now in the city, and uh, and also do uh, a background uh, in in addiction addiction research and uh, methamphetamine addiction. So I still still have a little bit of connection to to that, even though I'm mostly doing meditation stuff. Um, okay. Thanks. So, uh, anger. A lot of times when um, we're talking about things like... Uh, like anger or uh, other difficult states, um, the tendency is for us to want practices, uh, ways of, of meeting that experience. And, and I'll share, share practices around that. But important also to, um, to set up the view, to set up the view skillfully, meaning that we... we um, how we approach anger, it's how we understand it is going to really impact how we can, uh, how we can work with it. And there are a couple um, attitudes that I, I find very supportive for, uh, for this practice. Um, I think at various times during the talk, it'll sound like I have some strong moral judgment about anger. So let me just start by um, dispelling that notion. There's, you know, at some level, whatever arises, um, we have to honor that. You know, there's a, there's a kind of radical um, permissiveness about what has arisen in the sense that we're really not moralistic about w anger or what should arise or what shouldn't arise in experience. Um, if it has arisen, it, it, um, it deserves its place in our practice, which means its place in our heart, really. And so uh, any time that it feels like there's some judgment about anger shouldn't arise or something like that, it's, I, I'm uh, not, not intending to convey that. There are these two attitudes, I would say, of um, radical accountability and blamelessness uh, that are uh, important to pair together. So let me say a little about that. The radical accountability side is that we, in, in, bringing, in making anger a kind of dharma practice, we are uh, committing to um, a kind of sense of responsibility and accountability for anger. The, you know, the nature of anger is always to it directs the attention outwards to the problem, the source of the anger. And Dharma practice um, asks that we actually recognize that the seeds of anger are, are here. It's not that the external situation doesn't matter or something like that, but the seeds of the anger are, are here. And 
that at first feels maybe like a little depressing, you know, <laughs> like that feels like bad news, right? But uh, ultimately, just like the first noble truth, uh, that there is suffering, ultimately this is a relief. This is a relief to us uh, because it means that we're, we don't have to be so uh, subject to it. it. It means that we can find ways of working with it independent of what's happening in the world. But now that, that approach of like being radically accountable for the experience of anger, um, if we just had that, it gets too heavy and it feels like uh, there's a lot of room for self-blame. Yeah. So there's this other side, which we could maybe call um, the kind of, um, the innocence of anger. That it, it arises out of a million causes and conditions out of our history, our personal history, our genetic history, our evolutionary history, it arises out of so much. And the notion of like placing blame on ourself for its arising doesn't make sense in that perspective. And so there's this, there's this pairing of like, I will not, I, I will own the anger and I will not blame myself for its arising. And those two attitudes actually work together uh, in the exploration of, of, uh, of anger as a Dharma subject. This is Jack's teacher, Ajahn Chah. About this mind... In truth, there's nothing really wrong with it. It's intrinsically pure. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. Uh, the untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. We must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. So maybe we take heart in this kind of um, idea that uh, as we look in more and more deeply into the mind, um, there's less and less self-blame. And uh, we can develop a kind of confidence that we can look in and we can see the ways in which we struggle and suffer and for all of that not to be a commentary about who we are in some way. And that's important if we're going to really explore our inner life. This, this quality of blamelessness. To see the, um, you know, to see the, uh, to see how anger functions, uh, retreats are a very good window. <laughs> Who's been on residential retreat? Okay. Um, there's a well-known phenomena on retreats. Uh, it sometimes gets the name like Yogi Mind, where something catches the attention and all of the attention gets fixated on this one thing. And it's usually that there's a problem with someone or something and they're sitting right next to you. you know? 
<laughs> and so, um, or you have in mind that there should be garbanzo beans at the salad bar, and there aren't. <laughs> and this is like a criminal injustice. Uh, the, the mind just locks onto something, and then the whole you know, story of, of uh, aversion and anger unfolds. And we actually, because we're in retreat and our only work is to be aware of what's happening moment by moment, um, we sort of see this whole thing crescendo. And then at some point, it, it's like a house of cards that gets built up and then it collapses. And when it was at its peak, there was, we were fully seduced by the anger. We were really pointing outwards. But then we actually get to see that whole structure of thinking and feeling just collapse. And, we're left with the sense of, um, of radical accountability. It's sometimes so humbling, you know, to look back uh, over a period of an hour or a day and, and see how, just how caught we were. And when we were caught, it really felt like the world's fault, you know? And then that fades and we're left with uh, an appreciation of like, oh, okay, the anger arose here. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, for some people, it's um, anger, I feel like, is a a really uh, important developmental phase. You know, like it's, it's actually progress to start getting angry, you know? Before that, maybe there's confusion or self-blame or just being checked out or there's so much fear of one's own anger that it's just suppressed habitually. And so sometimes I can remember uh, in doing, doing, um, psychotherapy, that there was one person who, uh, a client who like finally said she was angry with me, you know, and I was so delighted, you know, it was like (coughs) true progress that she was actually allowing herself to, to feel anger. And so we have to kind of respect our own journey with this. You know, some people, uh, some people, you know, have over-expressed anger. Some people have under-expressed it. Um, but whatever our external, suppre- external expression, whether we've over or under-expressed, we want to find um, a way of feeling uh, safe like of making our inner life feel safe. And that requires um, befriending in a way, everything that arises, including anger. This is um, from chapter from Shanti Deva's um, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, sort of foundational text in the Tibetan tradition. And this is how the, uh, the chapter on patience starts. And it's a little, he uses big language to like really get our attention here. So, um, good works gathered in a thousand ages, such as deeds of generosity or offerings to the blissful ones, A single flash of anger shatters them. No evil is there similar to anger, no austerity to be compared with patience. Steep yourself, therefore, in patience, in all ways, urgently, 
and with zeal. Now, sometimes I hear that, you know, a single flash of anger shatters a long history of good deeds or something. And maybe that sounds a little melodramatic or something, right? Um, but, uh, you know, in reflecting on uh, the history, you know, the kind of history of humanity, um, our most painful episodes, I think almost invariably have an element of anger and hatred. And in our interpersonal relationships, the, the experience of feeling safe with another person, it's a very kind of cherished experience. And, you know, to really feel safe with somebody I think we want them to have worked through their own anger. That's part of, part of what, um, how we can trust them is if they have digested their own anger. And so from the international to, to the interpersonal, like anger has really important implications. And, uh, and I think it is a, a real service to those around us to take this up as a, as a theme in our practice. The Buddha said, um, the Buddha was, it was um, very strong on this theme too. The Buddha said uh, that, that we're learning to renounce anger um, with its honeyed, tip and poisoned root. Honeyed tip, poisoned root. Yeah. And so we all know that taste of honey, right? Yeah. That's, that's the seductive quality of anger, that uh, there's, there is that sweetness. It simultaneously hurts, but there's that sweetness, yeah? But invariably, uh, anger, we come to know what the Buddha calls the poisoned root, too. And I've had to kind of train myself that when I'm tasting that honey, to remember that root. But when we're tasting that honey, we, we forget. We forget everything. It's about the garbanzo beans, you know. <laughs> whatever, whatever, you know. Um, so I've come, you know, to, to, um, to, rea- to try to drink in deeply the insight that in anger, there is always a seed of delusion. It's always there. Sometimes people say, like even Dharma, in Dharma circles, that that in anger there's clear seeing, you know? And maybe that's a part of it, but there, in my experience, there's always delusion tangled up with it also. That is, I never, anger is never the last word, you know? It's never, it's never the conclusion. There's always something more to be seen, yeah? Even if the world needs to be changed and we, you know, and there is a legitimate cause of the anger, there's always some delusion in it. And part of our practice is seeing it again and again, seeing anger arise and fade away and being able to actually detect like, oh yeah, I was confused during that time. There was something about reality I was not seeing. And that pops up like a bell in my mind now, you know, 
not always, but when I, when, but, but sometimes when I'm angry, I actively reflect back on all the times um, that I got caught up in the honey and forgot the root. And that insight has to like sink into our bones because anger has such an inertia, right? When we're at that peak of it, it just um, hijacks body and mind so effectively that the Dharma feels so far away. And so part of what we're learning to do is to... uh, to be able to remember the Dharma even in the middle of really intense feeling. And that, that I think just takes training. We need to build some momentum so that the, that alarm bell goes off even in the middle of intense feeling. One time, um, Ajahn Chah again gave um, an angry, uh, who's Thai forest uh, teacher. There probably is a picture of him in here. Um, and I don't know whether it was a lay person or a monastic, but they came to him and said, I'm angry, you know, like furious, whatever, and what should I do? And he gave a very counterintuitive instruction uh, that we could call something like hatred meditation. And what he said was, um, please go off and for the next hour, sit down and I want you to practice continuously hating your enemy and just keep hating them. And if you're Attention wanders off. If it goes to the breath, bring it back to hatred. (laughs) If it wanders into metta or kindness or something, right back to hatred. Keep hating them. Now, uh, I've done a little of this practice. (laughs) What do you think happens? Misery. Misery, yeah, yeah. Um, there, the burden that of hatred is, is heavy. It's really heavy. That taste of the, the honey is mixed with the poison. Yeah. And, uh, we actually get a vivid sense of this when we, you know, in that very counterintuitive meditation instruction. And the other thing we see is that anger requires reiteration. It requires that we keep feeding the fire. And sometimes the fire is burning really bright and we're like at, in that, at that crescendo phase, yeah? Um, and sometimes there's just like an ember And to get back to that, the flames, that ember needs, it needs to be stoked. And the way we do it is through internal talk. And sometimes it is so fast. It's like that, that fire has died down, but the ember is still there. But all it takes is one word, yeah? or one fleeting image coming through the mind and it ignites again. And some of what this, uh, this practice that Ajahn Chah was, uh, was giving to the student uh, makes it clear that, that anger needs to be fueled continuously by something. So our, uh, our practice here, um, the Buddha said we could do, we can do four things when we're in pain. Blame ourselves, 
blame others, despair, or investigate? Answers D. Investigate. What what is anger made out of? Like what's it actually made out of at the level of our experience? What is it made out of? Pain. Pain, yeah. We so we wanna look we wanna become intimate with our our experience. And um Anger, um, anger, and and uh, emotion more generally, we could say that it's made out of the body and mind, sort of talking to itself, ta- having a conversation. So there's feeling in the body, right? And stories of anger, they don't have. If there's no juice in the body. Th- those stories, they're just like paper thin, they, they, right? Um, but there's, feel, there's actually feeling in the body and it's not like it's in one place, but we actually look inwards to see um, where, how does this arise? Like, how do I actually know that I'm angry right now? And we start to bring a lot of um, clarity to the actual experience of anger in the body. But that anger, it's like uh, the feeling in the body and the conversations in the mind and the images in the mind, it's like the attention is ping-ponging from one to the other, right? Think about times when in the middle of a very difficult emotion, there's not a lot of stability in the attention, right? It's just you're, there's like a... um, there's some words going on in the mind, there are images, there's feeling, and the attention is just bouncing around. And the Buddha's instruction around investigating is to actually begin to untangle the experience of anger so that it's not this big glob of, you know, I hate whatever but we actually get really precise. What is this experience of anger? And we bring mindfulness and equanimity to the body that is seeming to compel us to act or compel us to say something. You know. Because the, the feelings in the body, they make you know, this is a little bit like what I was talking about with Mara. They make a promise. If those feelings in the body, the feelings of anger could speak, they would say, if you lash out, I'll leave you alone. There's some relief. They promise some relief. They promise, those feelings promise the honey but we get the root too. So some of what we're learning to do is actually uh, bear with the intensity of that, of feeling. And it's like being buffeted by very strong winds, you know? The the feelings of, of anger is like a very strong wind is blowing through us. And part of what we're learning to do is even though that wind feels like it's going to break something, we're learning to trust that it won't blow anything over. It's just wind. It's just feeling. So we learn in a way to uh, flow with the uh, with that the intensity of that wind, and we develop some confidence that it won't 
break anything inside us. It won't blow anything over. And this comes, I think, just through repeated experience of bearing with that wind. Not suppressing it, not holding on to it, but just being, feeling its impact, absorbing its impact. And seeing that we can actually stay steady in the midst of it even with all the promises that anger is making. So we're bringing investigation, mindfulness to the, the experience of feeling and also to the images and uh, conversations that arise in the mind. We start to actually get clear, like this is, the thinking mind. And when we don't hear the thinking mind as the thinking mind, we hear it as the voice of God. Like some kind of unquestioned authority when thinking is not recognized as thinking. It's just we take it to be a perfect description of the world. So we're training ourselves. We actually come to see the images and hear the thoughts. This is mindfulness of, of thinking. So there's this process of, of investigating, of untangling this big blob that feels like anger into components, into specific things arising in body and mind. A kind of loving attitude is uh, very supportive in this process. This is Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, Just like our organs, our anger is a part of us. When we're angry, we have to go back to ourselves and take good care of our anger. We can't say, go away anger, I don't want you. When you have a stomach ache, you don't say, I don't want you stomach, go away. No, you take care of it. In the same way, you have to embrace and take good care of your anger. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has a, has a book dedicated to, uh, on, on anger, it's just titled Anger. And, um, he has some very interesting practices and approaches. Um, and the, the guiding metaphor is that we actually, we're actually taking care of our anger as a compassionate mother cares for her child. That's the attitude and approach that we're taking to our anger. Not, not judgment of the anger or suppression of the anger, uh, but actually uh, caring for it as a child that is, um, needs our wisdom and needs our patience and our love. And so his suggestion is um, uh, what we call venting he actually calls rehearsing anger. He says, be really careful. Like, don't hit pillows. Don't, you know, have some screaming exercise or something. He's, he's, his suggestion, I don't know if he's right, but his suggestion is that's actually uh, a way of, of, of rehearsing the anger. And his instruction, and he's writing more in the context of interpersonal anger that arises in our relationships of friends or family or partners. Um, his suggestion is at first, don't do anything. 
it's sort of when our IQ is lowest, you know, right? And uh, we're just, we just, not much good comes out of those first seconds after anger, right? That's, that's, that's not our peak wisdom moments, right? Um, so he says, don't do anything in that time. Just do what you can to, um, to not act on it, to begin to bring some mindfulness to it. And specifically, he suggests doing walking practice or practicing with another person that you, you know, feel close to or supports your practice. And um, his, his emphasis is on, um, is on communicating, actually. Um, sometimes our anger just, we just have to work it out on our own, but sometimes it has to be worked out interpersonally. Like we can't just practice it away ourselves. That's sometimes our, our hope, like, okay, I'll just deal with this on my own and I won't have to have that conversation, right? Uh, and sometimes maybe that's true. Like, I didn't need to uh, have a conversation with the cooks about the garbanzo beans or something. Like, that was my practice just on my own, right? But sometimes the way anger arises, it's got to be, uh, it's an interpersonal solution. We have to practice on our own, but its actual solution is, is through a conversation. Uh, but this is to actually talk about anger rather than act it out is an incredibly vulnerable thing to do. And at some level, the anger, uh, you know, the last thing that we feel like in our anger is we don't feel vulnerable. We feel like big and puffed up and strong in a way. Um, but the truth is the very fact that we could be, you know, become angry means that we were hurt and that we can be hurt. And in an important way, anger testifies to the vulnerability of being human. We'll get to that in the questions, yeah. So uh, the encouragement is actually to experiment with um, the, ex you know, with actually sharing ab about anger and, um, Thich Nhat Hanh has, has a few, he actually prescribes a couple steps in this. Um, and this, he's talking really in the, in the context of, of close relationships. Um, but he has three phrases that, that have been, uh, that are become quite meaningful to me. Um, and it's not even that I use the phrases often, but just the, the thoughts themselves actually soften my heart. And so what he says is after a time of practicing on one's own and, and taking good care of anger as, as uh, one takes care of a, of a child, um, says, proposes actually interacting with, with the person who's angered you and, um, the three kind of um, steps in expressing oneself, he says, um, um, to say, actually to say in your own words, you know, I am angry, uh, I suffer. Yeah. I am angry, I suffer. And the second is, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best to take care of my anger. 
I'm doing my best to digest this. And then the third uh, is, uh, I need your help. And that always kind of breaks my heart open because the last thing in the world we want to say when we're in the middle of anger is, I actually need help. I need your help. But in the context of... um, of some relationships where there's enough uh, trust and mutual investment, uh, we can say things like this. I'm angry, I'm doing my best, and I need your help. I don't want to be angry myself, and I don't want my anger to spill onto you. And even if we don't uh, use these words, just the introducing those thoughts into the mind can be, uh, can be helpful. Now, um, Say a bit, bit more. Um, some of um, what helps us in meeting anger is very explicit um, um, teachings or practices around anger. Uh, but the Dharma, the Dharma also um, attends to like what what are what are the roots of anger? How, how does this arise in the first place? And uh, I don't think this is the only root, but we could say that um, the more um, strongly we cling to notions of self, the more prone to anger we are. That is, the more we live our life in a way trying to protect certain notions of who we are, the more opportunities there are for for anger. So in our life, we, we all have some, you know, we may not even be conscious of it, but some very deeply cherished ideas about who, what we are and what we're not. And clinging to those notions, um, you know, is like, um, we're sort of, it puts us, it creates a kind of um, vigilance and it's like we're sort of standing guard at the gates of self. Know. we're uh, monitoring like um, this sense of, of who we are, what makes us uh, valuable, what we're not. And uh, that kind of um, vigilance uh, makes us prone to anger. Yeah? Because the world is kind of a big ego challenge, right? It's not just me, right? It's like the world is like, yeah, the world is going to press on those I, those cherished ideas of who we are. Yeah. And the habitual response a lot of times is, is something like anger. Some of what we're doing is working with anger as it arises, but some of what we're doing is draining the emotional charge from those self-definitions. That makes sense? Yeah. So that it's not, um, there's so much less energy bound up in being this or being that. You know? And... Uh, 
you know, anger comes when like one of our soft spots gets pressed, right? And the ego has a lot of soft spots. So part of what we're doing is, uh, is draining the charge of those self-definitions. And this happens in many different ways through our practice. So that we feel less and less ground to protect, less and less um, need to stand guard. And then the, the very basis of, of anger uh, uh, can collapse. These are teachings on, on not, uh, not self. But importantly, the sort of flip side of the teachings on not self are teachings we could say, I don't even know if this is a word, but not other. When we're in the mode, uh, when, like when the anger peaks and we're in the kind of crescendo of anger, um, we're always looking to pin that anger on the most, the innermost aspect of the person. It's like we, we essentialize them. And it's like we try to um, uh, hang the blame like on the coat hook of their deepest self. <laughs> I know that's a weird way to put it, right? But do you know that experience? It's like we're, we're not like, we're not, casually blaming them. We're like, we sense that there's something wrong with them at the core of their being. And that's where the blame is to be pinned, right? Yeah. But the, these teachings on not self, not other says that coat hook, that doesn't exist. There's no center of their being on which to pin that blame. And so we're always getting angry at someone in, in the sense of uh, uh, their self. The Buddha says, this is our imagination. We see it here. We see it here. And then we actually also have to see it there. And when the insights into not self generalize and we start to see others, uh, something like uh, the, uh, the innocence of the being of the other, that, that's what becomes predominant. It doesn't condone harm and we may have to take very strong actions to... Um, to stop harm. That's, 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 in no way is this condoning harm, but we actually look more deeply to see how another person's behavior unfolds. To, to close, I'll say, say a few words about, um, about the place of, uh, of forgiveness in the, the middle of all of this. And it's probably, probably helpful to, to say what forgiveness is not first. It's not um, an obligation. It's something we actually choose to do. It's not a denial or suppression. It's not, you know, it's like forgive and forget. It's probably not forgetting always. It's not pushing away the anger. Um, It's it's not, 
it's not boundaryless or um, it's not condoning harm. And it's not, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. As, as um, uh, I think it was Stephen Levine said that we might let someone back into our heart, but never back into our home. We think that forgiveness is letting them into our heart and our home, but maybe it's just the heart sometimes. And in the Buddhist psychology, reconciliation is a step beyond forgiveness. Um, this is um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. When you forgive me for harming you, you decide not to retaliate, to seek no revenge. You don't have to like me. You simply unburden yourself of the weight of resentment and cut the cycle of retribution that would otherwise keep us ensnarled in an ugly samsaric wrestling match. This is a gift you can give to both of us, totally on your own, without my having to know or understand what you've done. The Buddha admitted that not all disputes can be reconciled. There are times when one or both parties are unwilling to exercise the honesty and restraint that true reconciliation requires. Even then, though, forgiveness is still an option. This is why the distinction between reconciliation and forgiveness is so important. It encourages us not to settle for mere forgiveness when the genuine healing of right reconciliation is possible. And it allows us to be generous with our forgiveness even when it's not. So this practice is, um, it's a service we do uh, for ourselves and um, for others that, that we might become a kind of uh, refuge for others. So we have some time for a few, few questions. Thanks, Alice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.